Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Last week, you know, I spoke about, uh, I just, just shared a little bit about my sabbatical and I spoke out of John. This week, um, I, again, uh, it's not, I'm not particularly doing a series or anything. I'm just going to talk out of something that I suppose God has given me over these last few weeks. And it's kind of pertinent and relevant to uh, what's been going on, to the word that I've just brought there, to even our worship. So it's encouraging to be able to do it. I want to talk about our struggle our struggle, or our battle. I've been reminded of the spiritual nature of the struggle that we face as Christians, of the battle that we have, uh, both in the church, where you don't need to know all the detail, a few people have had, they've had dreams, quite vivid, but um, almost quite scary dreams. Um, and that's, you know, a few people have had that and that's sort of come to our attention that almost appear as warnings to them. Uh, that some of the church leaders that I meet with every week, I had a meeting this week, have been sharing about an increase in uh, what they've described as spiritual conflict and a growing need to be aware of the spiritual struggle that we are in to be able to stand our ground and grow in our identity and lean on the sovereignty of God. And so I've just become aware a little bit of those things. And so I wanted to address that by looking at a very well-known passage in Ephesians 6. But before that, I want to parallel it with a a very well-known speech, which is not a passage from the Bible, but it's a a speech um, that at times has got hijacked by people, but really it kind of um, fits with the passage that we want to look at today uh, with the aim of in in the end encouraging us in our faith in the struggle the two I suppose ends of the spectrum when it comes to spirit that you know the spiritual battle spiritual warfare is if you're not careful you see spiritual warfare in absolutely everything and you're binding and casting out things in every moment of every day Um, so you say to your two-year-old it's them binding you and whatever and then on the other hand you don't see the spiritual in anything that you walk out of church and you walk out of 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 singing praises to God and you walk back into the world and you forget completely that you're in a battle you forget it and so you can be one of those two extremes and and we don't want to be those extremes because both are dangerous and hopefully that will come out as we speak but the, the speech that I want to refer to, refer to this morning is, is, was given by Sir Winston Churchill. I mean, obviously, I'm not him. I'm not trying to even to be him. Uh, Sir Winston Churchill, I think it was about the, the 10th of uh, June 1940, around about, or 4th of June 1940. It wasn't long after he became prime minister. We'd actually already, uh, the, the, um, Britain had already declared war on Germany nearly a year before. And it wasn't going well, yeah? So, so this wasn't a, a high point in the war. This was a low point in the war. It's very close to, to, to France falling to, uh, uh, to, uh, to the Nazis at that point. So this is what Churchill said. And we need to, uh, this is what he said. It was, it, I think it was his, either his first or his second speech to Parliament at the time that he had taken on, uh, become Prime Minister and had, uh, I suppose, formed a new war cabinet. We shall go on to the end. 
We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if which I do not believe for a moment, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Churchill's address was not just to soldiers. It was not just to people who were on the front line. It was to the nation. It was to people who themselves would never see direct conflict or battle. It was to everyone. He was saying, we are at war, folks, and we will never give in to our enemy. We will stand our ground. He wanted the people of Britain at that time to be in no doubt of that situation. I used to work in the civil service, and, uh, um, and when we used to go into the office, they, they always had a little plaque outside which told you what the kind of state of emergency was. And, and in those days, it was always uh, black or black special, which meant there's nothing to worry about, nothing's going on. Yeah? Whereas today, it, it's changed. Uh, the, the state of emergency or the state of alert that people are on is no longer there's nothing to worry about. It's a lot more you need to be vigilant. You need to be careful. You need to be alert. And it's changed. He wanted, though, the whole people to know that his expectation was a victory. And yet he was very, very brave, really, because there was no guarantee of victory. And at that moment in the war, victory did not look likely. No doubt these words, we're at war, folks, shaped the way people lived up and down the country. You no longer did what you used to do. You no longer said, OK, we're going to go on two week, a two-week holiday down to the, uh, down to the beach and, and you're there and, and you're watching sort of little boats come over with wounded soldiers and you're on holiday. That didn't happen. People knew that the nation was at poor. People were to carry on their normal lives as much as possible, but they were to be alert, they were to be ready, and they were to be clear-minded. The state of alert had risen to imminent. Now let's read our passage for today. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in their heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, this is what Paul says, that whenever I speak words uh, may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. A bit like Sir Winston Churchill, the Apostle Paul wants those who hear this message to be in no doubt that they are in a battle, that there is a struggle. He speaks of standing firm and not giving way to the enemy's schemes. He speaks of the weapons that we are to use in this battle. He gives a battle cry, a rallying of the troops for the battle ahead. And there might be moments where you feel like you're right in the front line. There might be other moments when you're not feeling like you're in the front line, but you're still in a battle. You're still in a war. We have to find that balance, as I talked about, between um, not thinking we're at war and thinking that everything's a spiritual battle. The biggest difference between our battle and the one that Churchill faces is simply this. We know the outcome. He didn't. But we know the outcome. Now, the fact that our outcome is assured does not mean we're not in a battle. And we must get that. It's it's easy to think, well, Jesus is victorious and that's the end of the story. There is still a battle there is still something that we have to win through on. Our victory is assured. When Churchill said those words, his was not. Jesus has won the battle. And it was interesting in our worship, that became really evident. We were were celebrating the fact that, and and declaring the fact that Jesus had won, that he was victorious. And because of his victory, we can stand today. He has conquered sin and death, but we still have struggles. We still have our own battles to face. So how does Paul prepare the people for the battle? I'm just going to got three uh, points, and then we're going to go through and hopefully uh, uh, finish with a song of worship. The, the first thing that he talks about, if you like, is the context of life the context of life. And he he makes a number of small but really important points here. Firstly, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Yeah, He's saying two things when he says that. First of all, it's not a physical battle. Now, it may be that maybe at school or at work, you've got, maybe you've got a teacher, maybe you've got another person that you know, maybe somebody in your life, in your mind, is oppressing you or bullying you or it's difficult. Maybe there's a manager at work and you think, ah, things aren't good there. And, and you can kind of see them as the enemy. And Paul says, your struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against individuals. 
Yeah? And that does two things. First of all, it's not physical, but secondly, it's not personal. It's not that this person, that somehow this person has been put on earth in order to cause me trouble. Yeah? That, that's, that's not the case. Even though there might be people who cause you trouble, it's not like they're, and, then, and, you, and you want to pray, God, just get rid of them or get them out of my life. Yeah? That's not the case. It's not physical. It's not personal. It's spiritual. The struggle of the Christian is spiritual. Secondly, it tells us who our struggle is against. It's against the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly realms. It's not a personal issue. It's not between you and me. We have a common enemy. It's against someone. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 8 tells us, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is actively looking. He's not gone on holiday, sitting on the beach, waiting for things. He is actively looking for people who have forgotten their inner battle and people who are careless and thoughtless, and he's going to get in. That's what he's doing. Always actively looking. Our battle is not pretend or make-believe. Yeah? This is not a fairy tale. This is not just something that, you know, um, one of the challenges of the armour of God is we kind of can reduce it to like a Sunday school story. Yeah, and you have pictures and you can sing a song about the armour of the Lord. Uh, But really, it's very real and we have to take it seriously. Our enemy is powerful, though not ultimately powerful, and is dangerous, but not to be feared. So uh, our, our battle is against those rulers and authorities. It's, gay, it's against the enemy. And what it tells us we need to do is put on the full armour, not the full armour of this world, not armour that we have chosen, but the full armour of God. We're to put on the full armour of God, not another kind of armour, not some kind of, oh, I've got a new way of dealing with stuff. No, it's, it's not about new ways, humanistic ideas. It's the armour of God that we put on. That's the only armour that will protect you in the battle. When Dave prayed, he, he, he prayed about God's name is about, it's the only name by which people can be saved. You can't be saved by another name. And you can't be saved by the name of Jesus connected to some other name. It's only by the name of Jesus that you can be saved. It's only by putting on the armour of God that you can be protected in the battle. And it's interesting because all of us, all those who call themselves Christians, we're all on the same side and we all need the armour. And it's only God's armour that offers the protection that we need. And then, in that first part of the passage, in the context of life, it says this, stand your ground. Stand your ground. Now, sometimes we can think that the way Christianity moves forward is we, make, we kind of make progress, we do stuff, we're out there, we're sort of taking ground. But what Paul says here is you need to stand your ground. What Churchill was really arguing for is we need to stand our ground. We are not going to allow the enemy to take this land. We are not going to do that. Yeah? There was going to be a point when we're going to take ground, but right now we need to stand our ground. Our main aim is to stand. It's to stand firm 
and you know what? That's how you defeat your enemy. You defeat your enemy by standing. Yeah? You defeat your enemy by not giving up, not giving way, and not giving in. That's how you defeat your enemy. It's not just that you stand ground and you think, oh, just managed to do that. No, that's how you win the battle. You stand. You hold it together. And that's why we need to be alert. This is what Kay Snodgrass says in, in, in one of his commentaries about Ephesians and this passage. He says, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. If you think about it, if you think about um, um, Hitler leading Nazi Germany, which he took on years before the war, what he did was he brought hope to people. That was originally what he did. He brought hope to the masses. And then Snodgrass goes on to say, it gains entrance by appearing attractive desirable and perfectly legitimate. So evil doesn't come at us and look evil. It's not like, you know, you, you, you know, the battle that you have is there's this evil picture and then suddenly evil's there in front of you. You think, oh my goodness. You kind of notice it. No, evil often looks attractive. It's often desirable and it often appears legitimate. It's only when you see it accomplishing its goal that you realise, oh my goodness, that's not right. Which is why we're being asked to stay alert and to stand firm. How do we stand firm then against the enemy and the evils of our day? Just quickly run through these, not going to do a big sort of exposition of them. Firstly, this tells us about the belt of truth which is all about personal, or one of the ways to describe it is personal integrity, moral courage. What is the truth we are to wrap around our waists? It's the revealed truth of the gospel, and it's to live by that truth. So you've got the gospel truth, it's revealed to you, but it's also about living by that truth. This is what Spurgeon said, and this is really interesting because it must have been, he must have said this 150 years ago. This is what he said. The current principle of the present age seems to be some things are either true or false according to the point of view from which you look at them. Some things are either true or false according to your perspective. And he said that about 150 years ago, but that applies today, doesn't it? That people think that, oh, that's true because you think that's true, or that's true because I think that's true, or that's true because everybody believes it. But with Jesus, or with us, we know in God there is truth. And, and it doesn't matter where you stand, there is truth. The truth about God is this. God defines us. Yeah? I am defined by how I am in relation to God. And there are really only two options how I am in relation to God. I'm either a sinner in need of grace, or I'm a saint who's been given grace. There's nothing else. There aren't lots of other options and opportunities. In God, there are those two things. And it's because I'm defined by my relationship with God. I'm not actually defined by anything else. Now, some people would say, oh, no, no, but I don't believe that's true. And we, because of the kind of, we might go, oh, well, okay. But we know, we go, no, it's rubbish. That is true. That's what the Bible reveals to us. 
about God. The belt of truth. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is an upright heart. This could refer to the fact that we are righteous in Christ because of what he has done, that his righteousness has been given to me, that when God sees me, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see me and my sin. He sees the fact that I'm clothed in his son. It does mean that, but it also means that I am upright in my heart. I am righteous in how I live. There's integrity. I'm reflecting the character of God in the things that I say and the things that I do. Because if I don't do that, then I've not really allowed that truth to impact my life. If I call myself a Christian, but I don't live like I'm a Christian, then it talks about the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Strapped, and this talks about to face the enemy with firm-footed stability and the readiness produced by the good news. It tells us that we should keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Readiness is about our willingness to share the gospel, and it is about that, your willingness to speak to people as such as opportunities arise, but it's more than that. It's the knowledge of the gospel makes me alert and ready for life because I recognise I'm in a battle. Yeah? I'm ready, I'm alert. I'm not slouching around and, and things are passing me by. I'm ready, I'm clear-minded. The gospel impacts not just as a message that I give to somebody, but as a life that I live. I must have the gospel working in me all of the time. It's a 360-degree gospel. It's not a message I once heard I said hallelujah to. It's a message that continues to change me. The same gospel we share is the gospel that keeps on transforming us. And it's important when we introduce people to Jesus, don't let it stop at, and if you just accept Jesus, that's it. No. The gospel, that moment of acceptance, that moment of repentance, that moment of surrender is the ongoing moment of the Christian experience. It's repentance, it's surrender, it's forgiveness. It doesn't end when you first bow the knee. It continues. That's the way it works. And then next, the shield of faith, the ability to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. It says, above all, lift up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows. What protects us from evil is not, it's not my faith that protects me from evil. It's the faithfulness of God that protects me from evil. And I need to lean into that. I don't lean into my ability to, I'm holding on to truth, I'm holding on to truth. I'm really holding, I'm just holding, holding. No, I, I can't hold on to truth like that. I hold on to truth by going, Jesus, I'm just leaning on you. I am weak. Do you know what one of my most common prayers these days is, God, I'm weak. But do you know what? You're strong. And I can only know his strength when I'm weak. If I think I'm strong, do you know what? I'm too strong for God. If I think I've got it made, God ain't got no way of getting in there. God works through my weakness. Then the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. God's salvation, as we've talked about, is our ultimate protection. It has a, a, a present and a future aspect. The universal power of the gospel is what saves me. I'm saved because of Jesus. One of the things I love about Beacon is the fact that because we celebrate communion every week, we never fail to remember what he has done for us. Because the moment you forget what he's done for us, you're in trouble. 
It's almost like you take your helmet off. And when you take your helmet off, you begin to doubt, and you begin to question, you begin to wonder. Oh, am I saved? What does it mean to be saved if I try a bit harder? Because if you're not living in the good of salvation, you're going to do the thing that you're tempted to do, and it always be to try and earn it. You're always trying to earn your salvation. Oh, if I get up early today and pray, if I do this good deed, if I'm nice, if I say sorry to mum, if, if I do all these things, salvation is by grace. By grace. I'm accepted not because I was brilliant, but because he is faithful and powerful and able to save. And I lean into him. And then it speaks of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the word of God, yes, it refers to the Bible. But, you know, you could read some parts of the Bible. I don't know about you. I can read some parts of the Bible. And they don't necessarily give me everything I need. Yeah, there are some parts of the Bible which are very, very peculiar. Yeah, if you read through the Bible like on a regular basis, you read some very peculiar bits. But um, the message of the Bible is the message of redemption. It's the message of the fact that God has saved us. God has bought us. That's the message of the Bible. There are bits in it that I'm thinking, I don't quite understand that. But do you know what I do more and more now? Is I don't focus on the bits I don't understand. I, that's not because I'm being lazy. You might think, oh, come on, you need to focus on those bits, honey. I don't focus so much on the bits I understand because so much of the time you can focus on the bits that you don't understand and you don't live in good of the bits that you do understand. So change it. Change the way you focus on the Bible. Focus on the bits that are really clear and you'll find that you don't even live in half the good of them without worrying about all the little bits that you don't understand. Because the little bits you don't understand, you can pass them over to the sovereignty of God. God, I don't understand this, but hey, you do. And when you walk with God, you can live like that. It doesn't matter. You don't go, go, I don't go to bed worrying about a predestination and all these different things. What do you mean by that, God? I don't know. Yeah, And I don't know. But you know what? I don't mind that I don't know. Because there's enough that I do know that keeps me going. I remember Billy Graham. I mean, I don't remember. This is me. We didn't have this conversation personally. But <laughs> I remember reading about Billy Graham. And he had a friend who was a... Um, who was a Christian but struggled with doubt. And his friend was always asking questions. And I remember uh, Billy uh, describing him, his friend asking him all these questions about the Bible that he could not answer. He couldn't answer. And his friend was struggling and he was struggling because he couldn't answer. And then what he did was he, he, he went away to his room and he got on his knees and he had the Bible in front of him, just like a Bible like we would have. And he said, God... I don't have all the answers. I, don't, I can't explain everything. But what I do know... Or, no, no, what he prayed was, I, I pray that the thing I do know about the gospel, about Jesus, that that will be enough. It will be enough for me, and it will be enough for the many that I preach to. That, that all those doubts won't keep clouding in. And he said from that moment, he didn't doubt. It wasn't because he had answered every question, but he had put his faith in the God of the Bible. And he said, okay, I don't understand maybe what Zechariah 4 means. Yeah? But I do know what John 3, 16 says. And I can preach that. And so sometimes we can get caught up with knowledge. You know, we think, I need to know a bit more. I need to know the context. I need to know the background. I need to know the Greek. I need to know the Hebrew. And John Piper really challenged me on this. He wrote a book, not personally again. I didn't meet him, and he challenged me personally. But in one of his books, Brothers, We're Not Professionals, he has a chapter called 
brothers, Beitzer was a banker. And it's this guy called Beitzer back in the 60s who, who, who wrote a book, in, or, who wrote a commentary on the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. And he was saying, this guy was a banker. He wasn't even a pastor. And I read that and I go, oh my goodness me, I can't read Greek and Hebrew. Yeah? But the prayer is this. God, I can't read Greek and Hebrew. And I don't want to be lazy. But I do want to operate by faith and to believe that the book that I read today tells me enough to know God, tells me enough to feed my soul and to help others find him. I need to know that. If I haven't got faith in that, I need to go back to, to college and start reading some language. Yeah? But that's what I believe. I believe there's enough. Yeah? That if you just take the Bible and you read it, that you will find God through that. And you'll find that he is sufficient for you. So then the third question is the import or the third point the importance of prayer as a weapon it says pray in the spirit all kinds of prayers Churchill talks about fighting and never surrendering he says we're going to fight on the beaches we're going to fight on the landing strips we're going to fight in the we're going to fight and we will never surrender our equivalent is we're going to pray we're going to pray with all kinds of prayers and requests. We're going to pray in the morning. We're going to pray in the evening. We're going to pray in the toilet. We're going to pray on the way to work. We're going to pray when we get to work. We're going to pray on our knees. We're going to pray. We need to become a kind of people where you are always praying. And you're not just repeating prayers like parrot fashion. You know, God, you know, you're not repeating prayers, but you're always, you live in that kind of attitude where, where, where you're praying deep in your spirit. You're always praying. You're always praying. Praying the spirit, all kinds of prayers and requests. Paul talks about praying and never giving up. He tells us to be alert. And in 1 Peter 4, it says, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. Yeah? Don't be a casual Christian, please. Don't be thoughtless. Don't be careless. Don't think, oh, it doesn't matter. Often little things matter. Be clear-minded. Be self-controlled so that you can pray, so that you can stand your ground. And it tells us to keep praying for all the saints. And, and I was led, even as I thought about this, um, was a particular group of saints, which is really interesting with some of the things that has come out. I want to highlight young people, youth. You know, my daughter's a youth, and, and so I'm more youthy. I'm actually not very youthy, as you know, but um, I hang ar I, I'm around youth, yeah? It doesn't make me youthy, but I am around uh, kind of young people. And these days, more than others, our youth, the youth of our generation are lost and unloved. And they're disconnected, and they live in a completely different world. It's almost like they live in a parallel universe. Yeah? That really, really cool people can kind of enter, but people like me go, oh my goodness, what is going on over there? And people like you do that. Oh my goodness, what's happening? This is one of the battlegrounds of our generation which we must engage with, we must, we must be involved in, both as a local church and with our involvement in New Day, we're engaged in this battle. 
My friend Ben Lindsay, who leads a church in, in New Cross, he started a prayer meeting called Battle for Lewisham. And what it really is, it's a, it's a gathering of people three times a year, three or four times a year, to pray for, for gangs and serious youth violence in Lewisham. That's what he does. And then whenever he hears about issues that go on, he connects in, he gets involved. And he's actually given, uh, you know, he's equipping other leaders to be able to get involved when you hear about stuff in your community. There is a battle for a generation that we cannot afford to ignore. We cannot just leave it to the side and go back to the beach and enjoy running in and out the water. We can't do that. I remember reading about um, the Hebridean revival and, and uh, uh, Duncan Campbell. And, and what he said, he said one of the peculiar aspects of that revival that happened in the Hebrides was the Holy Spirit coming upon many, many young people. And many young people were saved and added. Pauline and I, um, over my sabbatical, we visited about 12 different churches. Yeah? It was really interesting. Some of them were massive. They were like mega churches. It was like going to a football match. Yeah? Some of them were huge. Yet, the interesting thing was, in not one church did we see, obviously, young people. We saw kids, babies. We saw young families, we saw students, we saw older people, we saw black people and white people and Asian people, but there wasn't in one church, obviously, young people. And this was both here and in the States where we went. There's a battle for a generation. There is a battle, and we need to engage with it. And what young people need, let me just tell you what they need, they don't need us to be there you know, cool mentor, you know, we're just like, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, you and me. They don't need that, yeah? And, and we know they don't need that because that's not Dave. I'm not being horrible with that. That's not Dave. Dave isn't like that to them, yeah? But what, what they do need is they need Jesus and they need the church. And it was interesting today because that's what they prayed. Thank you for Jesus, God. Thank you for the church. Yeah? They need Jesus because nothing else saves you apart from Jesus. But they need church because nothing else disciples you like the church. Nothing else. And we miss it when we somehow think that we can take the gospel out of the church and really reach young people and see them discipled into faith. You can't do it. Jesus came for a people. Yes, we all are saved individually, but he came for a people, and it's the people that helps to bring and mature others. That's a battleground for us, and whether or not we, we wanted to engage with it, we're engaging with it. And thank the Lord for that. We're going to finish in a moment, and uh, can the band come up, because we are going to sing that song. I'm not going to go on to that last slide, Taby. I'm just going to finish with this. I think our biggest danger in relation to what I've been saying is this. We don't think we need the armour. We reduce the idea of the armour of God to a Bible story for kids in which you pin up a shield and you pin up a sword. We don't realise that we're in a battle. We think of the battle or the struggle as only in applying when things go wrong or are difficult in our lives. We don't think of the battle 
as the daily experience of the Christian, which requires us to be alert and clear-minded and self-controlled. But we relate it to particular circumstances. Oh, I'm going through a difficult period at the moment. It's almost like the enemy's on me. Do you know what? I don't mean to scare you. The enemy's always on you. Yeah? You need to stand firm. The enemy's always on you. He's always looking for a way in. The danger of not believing you're in a battle, the danger of not believing you need the armour, is you can take a careless, casual approach to life. And when you do that, that's when he gets in. You can be careless and you can be casual. Life for the Christian is to be defined in terms of how we live in relation to God. That's the measure. There's no other measure. It's not about how successful I am. It's about how do I live in relation to God. That's how my life is to be defined. Why? Because he created me. And he created me for purpose. The good news. Hopefully there's lots of good news, but the good news is this. We've won. We've won. What we're fighting is not, oh my goodness, cross fingers, will we survive? We've won. You're on the winning side. It was almost like, imagine if Churchill said to them in June 1940, instead of hoping we were going to win, he said, do you know what, everyone? We've won. We've already won the battle. The victory is already ours. Yeah, we need to mop up some things. Yeah, there are still struggles, but hey, we've already won. Paul doesn't tell us that so we become casual. He tells us that so we stand. And we stand firm. So let's stand together. We're going we're gonna to sing uh, a song together. And uh, I just want to encourage you to, to be those that stand. And where you're maybe having battles right now, that you just go, God, I'm giving that over to you. I'm not holding on to that battle. Let's sing together.
World War where the Allies knew that they had won. And it was quite a way before the end of the war. And uh, we all know it as D-Day. And after that, and the Battle of... uh, They kind of knew that victory was theirs. Well, this is what it says in Ephesians, just to encourage you about where we stand as Christians. And I'm reading from the Amplified Version just because it gives it a little bit more oomph. For this reason... Paul writes, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, the people of God, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. For I'm always, for I always pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, of insight into mysteries and secrets in the deep and intimate knowledge of him by having the eyes of your heart flooded with light so that you can know and understand the hope to which he has called you and how rich is his glorious inheritance in the saints, his set-apart ones, that's you and that's me. And so that you can know and understand what is the immeasurable and unlimited and surpassing greatness of his power in and for us who believe, as demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is victorious. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is is named above every title that can be conferred not only in this age and in this world but also in the age and the world which are to come and he has put all things under his feet and has appointed him the universal and supreme head of the church a headship exercise throughout the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all for in that body lives the full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself Jesus is victorious and you are found in him You're found in him. And just for a few moments this morning, I want to encourage you to lean into that. Lean into that truth as we sing this song. Death could not hold you. just listen to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team or upcoming events, please visit our website which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.